Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome, welcome. We are doing a show that is in two parts. Uh, each of those parts involves the phrase, the title, know-it-all, which raises questions about whether I should actually be a guest on this show. I think a lot of people think that I'm a know-it-all and not in the really nice sense of that word. If there is a nice sense of that word, I'm guessing there probably isn't. Anyway, I've been accused of it, um, maybe with some justification over the years. But we're going to look at it in two different ways. We're going to, in the final segment of the show, the second and final segment of the show, talk to A.J. Jacobs uh, about his book, The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. And this is like many of the things that A.J., uh, who has been a guest with us many times, like, um, like many of the things that he undertakes, this is not an entirely... A serious quest. On the other hand, it is a quest from which we learn because we learn from quests. But we're going to begin with another person who's been a guest with us many times and to great effect, and that is Michael Patrick Lynch. I'm using his authorial name. His new book is called Know-It-All Society, Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. Michael Lynch teaches at UConn. He's a professor of philosophy, director of the Humanities Institute there, also director of the New England Humanities Consortium, author of several books, including this one, teaches about truth and democracy, and has been on our show, as I said, lots of times before to talk about related issues. So, welcome back, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be back, Colin. So, um, actually, I'll have you summarize the kind of thumbnail thesis uh, of this book, and then we can sort of go at it from uh, a bunch of different angles. Sure. Well, you know, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody listening that if you go on social media for more than five minutes these days, you get a distinct sense that you know, Americans on different sides of the political fence just don't like each other very much. But the thing is, we may actually feel more polarized than we actually are. I mean, studies have shown that increasingly we look at people on the other side as misinformed, dishonest, and immoral, even though at the same time, these same studies are showing us that we agree on a wide range of topics uh, almost as much as we disagree. And, you know, the thing is, is that we know that the other side is looking at us as like, as the right often calls the left arrogant know-it-alls, and the left retorts, well, you know, that's just precisely the description of the person you elected president of the United States. The thesis of this book, in a way, could be summed up like this. Maybe both sides are right. Maybe to some extent, all of us, all human beings are know-it-alls, and that's part of the problem. And yes, I mean, I'm glad you're putting it that way, too, because I think it can be argued that the problem that we're talking about has been around forever. I think of Yates, you know, saying the best last the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Or we can go back even further uh, to the Bible, to Matthew, in which Jesus says, and why beholdest thou the moat that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in that, thine own eye? Social media is a great place to see motes that are in other people's eyes and ignore exactly. beams that are in one's own eye. But this is also probably wired into us a little bit to identify with our own superiority, correctness, rightness, and broader understanding of the truths of the universe than the other person has. 
No, that's that's exactly right, and something that I really want to stress in the book. And you're also right to bring out that the the kind of arrogance, and that's really what we're talking about, that I, I'm concerned with in this book, is an arrogance about your own opinions, about what you think you know. It's the arrogance of sort of moral certainty, of thinking your side has it all figured out. It's an arrogance that can go tribal. And you're right that you know the idea that this is a bad thing personally, politically, is not a is a, not a new thought. Um, to add another person to the mix. The great French philosopher and essayist Michel Montaigne, you know, thought that this arrogance, and that's his word for it, was the scourge of mankind. He thought that, you know, dogmatic zeal, he said, does wonders for hatred, but has never made anybody fly towards goodness. And he knew what he was talking about, because like us, he was living in a divisive time, and in fact, a much more divisive time, the period of the French Civil Wars during the Counter-Reformation that, you know, left France littered with corpses end to end. And, you know, what Montaigne wanted to do in response to that was to just check out a political life and, you know, try to try to be just skeptical about everything. And, and he ultimately wasn't able to do that. But even if he was, it's not a good recommendation for our democracy right now. You know, we don't want to be dogmatic in the way that Montaigne was warning us against, but also, you know, we need to have convictions in democracy because, uh, you know, a, a apathetic electorate is really, Colin, no electorate at all. Right. I, I think the question becomes, when do the convictions become more important to us than truths of facts that we might encounter that would countermand those convictions. In other words, is the conviction the thing itself? <laughs> and, and is it to be clung to for all, under all circumstances, l- letting go of your conviction would be a bad thing? It seems to me that's where we get in trouble. No, uh, agreed. And I think one thing that I uh, try to stress in the book, and I think is important for everyone to think about, is just for a second, what is it to have a conviction? Moral political conviction is it's not just a strongly held belief. I strongly believe that two plus two equals four, but that doesn't mean that it's a conviction of mine. A conviction is a commitment to something that matters to you that reflects the kind of person you want to be, the kind of tribe you want to belong to. It reflects your aspirations, the things you're trying to live up to, and the things that often you're willing to really put everything on the line for. And, you know, I think right now in our culture, where we face a lot of pressure, um, partly you know, partly because of social media, and partly because of just the way humans are constructed and how we form our convictions, we face a lot of pressure to make every matter of dispute, every matter of 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 opinion that we have, into a matter of conviction, into something that is reflective of our identity. Social media helps us sort of police that with each other, you know, uh, helps us signal to each other that we're on the same team, we have this same convictions. But once something becomes a conviction in this sense, once it becomes a conviction, then as you said, it's the sort of thing that we can become super resistant to the evidence about. And we also find, feel an attack on it is personal. Why, is, or why are those two things true? Because if a conviction is something that's reflecting your identity, then an attack on your convictions is personal, right? That's why it feels personal. And that's also why it'll make sense to you to try to, you know, rationalize away all the evidence against it. So if you have the conviction that your climate change is a hoax, it doesn't really matter what evidence comes down the pike, because if it's a real conviction, it's reflecting who you think you are and who you want to be. And that uh, means that once we let conviction into the house, so to speak, 
we are going to be jumping to the barricades. And so we need to be careful about what, how it is that we form our convictions and which ones we really choose to have. So um, one of the things that you stress in this book, too, is that, I, I mean, I, I think what we all tend to do when we are confronted with just the bare outlines of your argument is say, oh, yeah, I know who's arrogant. Rush Limbaugh's arrogant. I know who's a know-it-all. Sean Hannity's a know-it-all. And then, of course, the people on the other side are saying the same things about uh, Rachel Maddow or, or Adam Schiff or I don't know who they're saying it about. But, I mean, part of the problem is that mode and beam problem, and it is not a disease that is – that infects only one side of the political spectrum, right? Where both both sides are doing the same thing, essentially. Yes. I mean, because, as I said, you know, it, it's a human problem because humans have convictions. And that is a fact about the human condition. So, you know, arrogance knows no political sides. I mean, it is the case that certain types of politics, and I talk about this, uh, can uh, can make arrogance become more salient in our political culture. But it's also the, you know, it's, 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 it's not going to be the, even then, the type of politics that make it more salient aren't right now confined to just the right. Although I spend a lot of time talking about, you know, who that is our president, you know, who is no poster boy for humility. Uh, I think even his supporters would say about that. Yeah, say that uh, in the book. On the left, I think the, the, that is my tribe. I think the problem we fall into with intellectual arrogance is that we have come on the left, and I am guilty of this perhaps more so than most, of claiming that liberal politics, progressive politics, is the brand. And I use that term very uh, uh, specifically, um, the brand of rationality, that our politics is inherently more rational, is inherently smarter. And while, of course, I do believe that I stand by my progressive opinions and convictions, it's the problem that comes in is when you think that, well, the other side is is going to be biased and prejudiced because they, you know, they ignore the uh, science and, the, and I would never fall victim to that. Right. And We're I, human beings, so we will fall victim to it. And and I think well I, I want to get down to some specific examples and so let's uh, let's sure. walk through so you talked about uh, you know who or whatever you just called him so uh, as I was reading your book this weekend I also encountered uh, this guy Peter Weiner he's uh, um, he as I think you may hear him say in this clip he actually has served in three different Republican administrations but he's puzzled by the same thing that a lot of people are puzzled by not the arrogance and know it allism of uh, of President Trump but why Republicans he knows and respects Republicans that he would expect to know better than to continue to support some of these behaviors and policies which seem abhorrent when even lined up against, you know, a basic set of Republican values that he, Peter Weiner, espouses. Like, why do, they, why do they stick to what they're doing? And he came up with a kind of Lynchian explanation for that. Look, I've had countless conversations with Trump supporters. So, uh, you know, I've been a lifelong Republican. I've served in three Republican administrations, so I have a lot of contact and a lot of my conversations are actually to hear or listen to people, see where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. There, it is almost like a hermetically sealed world. It, and facts are like BBs. They just uh, bouncing off of a brick wall. They just don't, 
they don't penetrate. And I think one of the reasons they don't penetrate is there's something called the psychology of accommodation, which is people decided early on for a variety of reasons to accommodate themselves to Donald Trump. I think some of them thinking that things would get better, that he would grow in office, that he'd be surrounded by good people. He's gotten worse, but having made that accommodation early on, they didn't feel like they could get off. And now it's not just a defense of Trump. It's a defense of their defense of Trump. And so to indict him is to indict themselves and to indict their own judgment. And that's hard for, for any human being. Michael, I thought that was terrific. They're, they're... It is terrific. And, and Peter is right on point here, as he has been uh, with a lot of his criticisms of uh, his former colleagues. I think the you know the the point that peter's making right there is the one that i was making earlier right at the end he's signaling that look um the defense uh, of the defense has now become as important as the defense of trump and why is that because the their allegiance to uh his sort of authoritarian politics his politics of arrogance have actually uh, become hardened into conviction, and they become part of who they are. So they can't entertain the possibility of changing their minds about these policy issues without uh, changing, without seeing themselves as changing as individuals. They're too dug in and committed already. I, I'd also add one other thing to this. I think one of the things that Hannah Arendt uh, pointed out almost 70 years ago is that mass leaders, authoritarian leaders, are very keen to cultivate two often conflicting attitudes in their uh, followers. One of those is a feeling of being under threat, you know, and Trump does that very well. Caravans are coming. Caravans are coming. The liberals are out to get you. It's a conspiracy. That's He's exceptionally good at that, cultivating fear and anxiety. At the same time, he's also cult very good at cultivating another attitude that Aaron was keen to point out that authoritarian leaders want to cultivate in their followers, and that's a sense of superiority. So the sense that, well, really, we do, uh, we are better, we're maybe racially superior, we're, we're, we're smarter, whatever it is, in the particular case, and that superiority is justified by sort of a, uh, a mythic past that, as Jason Stanley calls it, um, and that is, you know, the leader who tells it like it is, is struggling to articulate in the face of the enemy. The point of you put those two things together, a sense of superiority and a sense of anxiety, and you get a recipe for arrogance. And you also get a recipe for a leader who is going to, as she said, Hannah Arendt, she, she said, a, a leader like this, one thing they cannot do is it ever admit that they're wrong. Because mm -hmm. to admit they're wrong is to admit that there's something more powerful than them. And that, I think, is, that is the truth. And that is a really key insight into the politics of arrogance that are going on right now. Because at the rock bottom, arrogance is a confusion of ego and truth. The arrogant person or the arrogant political culture thinks that what they say is true because it's they who said it. And that, ultimately, is what makes uh, this sort of attitude so dangerous. Yes, I mean, and 
in the denial of death, our inspector talks about the spell cast by persons. And one of the things that right. people like this can do also is, I mean, we are all stuck with the anxiety of death. Uh, but uh, if you can believe in something that would, makes makes you think that your set of beliefs will transcend your death, you know, by following this leader, you become a little bit bigger than the necessities of life and death. That also, right. I think, can make you may stay with them. We got to take a really quick break. We're talking to Michael Patrick Lynch, author of Know It All Society: Truth and Arrogance in Political Culture. We'll be right back. He's a man with a plan. Got a counterfeit dollar in his All right, we're back. We're with Michael Lynch, professor of philosophy and director of the Humanities Institute at UConn. He's the author of several books, most currently, Know-It-All, Society, Truth, and Arrogance in Political Culture. So, you know, so Michael, in a way, we just sort of did the moat and beam thing. We explained using Hannah Arendt and some other uh, thinkers, you know, how people might find themselves, and and Peter Weiner's clip, uh, how people might find themselves defending Trump, even though a lot of his behaviors and ideas would strike them in a more abstracted con- context as indefensible. So we have to do it for the left, too. I mean, is there, I, I have an ex- example that came to my mind reading your book. Is there a particular way that you like to explain why each side, the, why our side, so to speak, does that, too? Well, you know, I mean, I think that uh, the example that uh, often people like to cite to me is worth mentioning is, of course, the uh, block, uh, you know, box of deplorables um, comment that Hillary Clinton made. I think, you know, that's, when you read the transcript, you see that it's, it's com- complicated as things often are. But I think that attitude that a lot of people had towards, uh, and do still have, towards uh, uh, people on the right, uh, that is the attitude of people on the left, is a good example of the kind of uh, rationality brand that um, that we often have. Here's another example, too. Um, example from my own life. I uh, went to a polarization com- a conference, a conference on polarization, and afterwards we're, I was having a beer with a, a famous scientist, uh, and he is an expert on polarization, and he turned to me and he said, you know, I, I believe all this sort of, you know, public discourse and civility stuff, but at the end of the day, just screw him is what he, and he used a more colorful phrase. And what he meant was, everybody there knew what he meant. He meant, like, he doesn't want to deal with people on the right. And all of us have felt that. All of us on the left have felt that feeling, that at this point, it's just like talk, you know, as another, other people put it to me, Lynch, why do you write this book and tell us that we should talk to Nazis? That phrase alone, that question that I get almost at every speaking opportunity that I have is, why do you say, think we should talk to Nazis? I mean, first of all, I'm not saying that we should talk to Nazis, but I do think that the idea that the left has often that everybody that is, uh, does not hold progressive views needs to be sorted into the Nazi uh, 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 box is an example of a, a rush to generalization that you know, humans fall into. 
Yeah, and and um, I mean, I've encountered plenty of people on social media who, in response to my Socratic questioning, will say, will acknowledge that they view anybody, any of the sixty million plus Americans who cast a vote for Donald Trump, as unpardonably wrong and evil, and yes, deplorable. And you go back to Clinton's speech, and she she was saying like half of them might be deplorables, but there's a lot of people right. who've been prepared to double that bet and say, no, no, they're all yeah. deplorable. There's no one who can ever be pardoned for what they did here. There's no reasonable explanation for that. And I do think part of the problem. So I'll tell you, uh, give you a quick example. So I had uh, two friends of mine who I know kind of know each other. Um, one of them is, uh, you know, somebody who is a lifelong Republican and and has some pretty conservative beliefs. He's a really good friend of mine. Uh, and the, the other one is uh, about as left as you can get. But there's a lot of other things that I thought they had in common and that we all had in common. So we went out for drinks and we were talking about music and movies and stuff. And religion and stuff. But I mean, at a certain point, somehow or other, abortion came up. And so the conservative guy said, you know, I just have to say, I do regard abortion as the taking of a human life, the unilateral taking of a human life. And it's really something I can't get past. And the other guy was obviously very pro-choice in talking about uh, women having control of their own bodies and stuff like that. And it didn't turn into any kind of fight, but it it was an uncomfortable moment. But Mike, I think it was a really good moment too. You have to hear that. You have to understand, you know, that the people who are anti-choice, it's not just because they want to control women's bodies. I mean, a lot of them really believe it's the taking of a life. Well, I think that's a that's a great example, uh, actually, of the sort of conversation that uh, Americans really could use a lot more of. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the abortion case is a particular case where convictions are very strong on both sides. But uh, also, it is a case where I think a lot of people, um, whatever their stance, can acknowledge that the other side's convictions have um, an understandable moral framework behind them. They may disagree over certain matters of, of, uh, of, of deep fact, of questions about when does life begin, for example, and when, uh, what, what's more important from an ethical standpoint, a uh, woman's right to choose or uh, the uh, life of uh, an embryo, for example. But the more important thing here, I think, for our context, and is in those cases, there was actually some conversation, some dialogue happening. And I think that, you know, you mentioned your Socratic questioning before. One of the other things that we learned from Socrates' example is that it's important to get out and talk to people. Now, Socrates was, you know, uh, a bit of a smartass when he did it. But um, he also, he, but he did think that it was important to actually talk and ask people questions about what they believed in order to have a sense that maybe he didn't know everything uh, himself. And it, it's sort of ironic, I think, that we need to have a uh, ancient Greek philosopher remind us to uh, rip, rip away from the black mirrors of our phones and actually sit down and maybe talk to somebody over a beer sometime. Right. I don't uh, know whether this is all kind of recency bias, but everywhere I looked this weekend, I was seeing Michael Lynch ideas. So the New York Times released this thing where they had 526 Americans gather in a place called Grapevine, yes. Texas, uh, right. and, and, and they were all kind of 
picked because of the distribution of, of political uh, uh, ideology that they represented. And by the end of the weekend, clearly through kind of unmoderated conversations at meals, at the bar, walking around the grounds of wherever the hell they were, exactly. they, they started drifting centerward, uh, drifting toward one another, as opposed to being pushed away from one another. And uh, I think maybe that goes, we're going to run out of time pretty soon. So I think we do have to leave people with hope. That seems to go to your argument, too. I think it does. I think it, it goes to the idea that, you know, actually getting uh, together with people, uh, especially in, in, in context where you can build up some trust, can actually move us towards the opposite of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about arrogance and towards humility, towards a sense that maybe you don't know it all and that, that it's possible that you could learn from somebody who has different sorts of experiences that they can bring to the table. And, I mean, the, the problem here is that except for these little moments, these momentary experiments like Grapevine, Texas, and the New York Times, it doesn't seem like our society facilitates the kind of thing you're talking about. You know, there's that argument of the big sort that we have started to live closer to people who are more like us. I mean, where where do we get that lyceum? Where do we get that moment where there is this Socratic exchange? I think we don't have it right now in our society, and that's part of the problem. There isn't the structural conditions uh, that uh, there used to be, perhaps, in in town squares and even shared uh, media outlets. And I think many of us know that. Um, but there are still possibilities. I mean, one of the things that as having, the, having a uh, teenage daughter has really brought home to me is that while it's a real pain to have to drive her around to various sporting events, it's also uh, a place, sporting events, being a parent is the sort of thing that can actually put you in touch with people from very different walks of life than yourself and put you in touch with them in a way that allows you to see them and hopefully them to see you as, an, as a human being. That's just one example. I also think, of course, that we need to rethink, and I've written a lot about this, to rethink and re-examine how we're both committed to digital platforms and how those digital platforms are constructed. One of the things that we really need to start thinking about is how we're going to, to manage social media moving forward in a way that encourages a more public culture rather than discourages, uh, discourages it and encourages arrogance instead. Yeah. A lot of the things we're talking about are going to link up nicely with Thursday's show, which I recorded a while back in front of a live audience. It is about uh, the normalization of hate, but it gets to pretty nuanced stuff about sort of where hate comes from and how we might think uh, about these things. And, you know, uh, we are sort of out of time here. But first of all, I should say this book, Know-It-All Society uh, by Michael Patrick Lynch, is uh, a great read and it won't take you too long and it'll get you thinking about all kinds of stuff. And and the other thing that I, I thought while reading the book is that you know this week or last week I guess we 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 were reminded that we are still committed, as screwed up as our society is right now, we're still very committed to this idea of an exchange of ideas, that we will exchange ideas. Ideally, we won't turn red and start screaming at each other, but we will exchange ideas. When China reacted to one tweet, one tweet by the general manager of the Houston Rockets in this incredibly backlashing way, you realize what it would be like to live in a society where, where there really was only one set of, quote, truths, unquote. Uh, all of that is dealt with with, uh, in this terrific book. So, uh, Michael Lynch, thanks for joining today. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break here, and uh, nice people are going to, for just a few minutes, ask you to help support public radio. Uh, we hope that you do. Well, you know, 
All right. So, um, first of all, we want to thank Betsy Kaplan, our senior producer, who p- produced uh, this episode, as well as Monday's episode, when I forgot to thank her. Uh, also, to Kion Wolf, who's there on the board, making everything sound great, playing all that terrific music. Uh, Jared, our, our wonderful and exciting intern, who's actually in, he's in there helping Betsy Kaplan somehow. Uh, and he's working on one or two very interesting show episodes upcoming as well. So we're glad about that. And so it's never a bad idea to talk to A.J. Jacobs about anything, uh, and particularly because there's at least a possibility that he will know something about the topic that you've brought up, because quite some time ago, uh, he uh, and it's very ironic to be doing this just as Harold Bloom's death is being announced, because Harold Bloom would probably be on the list of people, living people, who knew as much as you could possibly know. Um, but uh, A.J. decided to embark on the somewhat benighted quest to try to know everything. Uh, and that is produced, as I mentioned before, the know-it-all, one man's humble quest to become the smartest person in the world. We welcome back to our show uh, A.J. Jacobs. So ex- explain, for starters, A.J., why you conceived this particular passion. Sure. Well, First, thanks for having me back. Yeah. Uh, this came about because of my dad. He started to read the encyclopedia when I was a kid. He just loves learning and reading. And he didn't quite finish. He made it up to the middle of the letter B around <laughs> Borneo or Boomerang. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try to finish what he began and remove that dark stain from our family history. Right. Uh, certainly, I think all the Jacobs are now holding their <laughs> heads higher. And and that's quite a few people because I seem to, didn't you get together with everybody who was genetically related to you or something like that? Wasn't that, that another project? Yes, that was another project to prove that everyone in the world is related. So you two are my cousin, right. Colin. So and I was can't ve- escape. I know. And as a family member, I was very upset about your father and that whole. <laughs> well, thank that you. B, B I'm glad edition. I helped uh, yeah. allay your fears. So, of course, then the question becomes so you embarked upon this project probably maybe around 2003 or so. The book comes out in 2004, runs some 350 pages. Uh, come up with an honest estimate of what percentage of the stuff that you learned and put into the book even you currently remember. Oh, that's got to be below 1%. That's <laughs> like, I'd say 0.3 is a generous estimate. And uh, it's not always uh, stuff that I wish I remembered. Uh, I, mean, I do think, and I'll, I'll get to this, that I got some wisdom mm-hmm. out of reading all of the encyclopedia. <laughs> but a lot of the facts that are stuck in my brain, I wish that I could remove, but I can't. For instance, opossums have 13 nipples. Right. Just don't know why that's in there. That's the way my brain works. Unfortunately, I think a lot of human brains work by uh, by f- uh, focusing on the weird, the bizarre. So, um, so that's uh, sadly uh, one of them. But I will say, on the good side, I do think that I came away with a general um, lesson that has made my life better. Uh, well, several, but one of them is just reading about all of human history you see that the good old days were not good at all. They were terrible. They were disease-ridden, violent, uh, sexist, homophobic, smelly. Uh, And uh, this idea of nostalgia, of going back to a better time, is really misguided. Um, Because 
whenever I get depressed, I just think about three words, which is um, surgery without anesthesia. <laughs> so just try, read anything about that. Right. Uh, and I think it will, we, we have tremendous problems now, no doubt. But it, the solution is not to go back to the past. No, this is kind of the Steven Pinker argument, right? That everything's sort of basically getting better. Um, right, exactly. and, But I feel like Steven Pinker at some point is going to, He's going to d- unveil like a whole planned community of condominiums based on his thinking. Like, come live here in Pinker Estates. You know, things are going to be, you're going to be so I'll much happier. I'll see you there. Yeah, see you there. Okay. Put down yeah. my, uh, put down my uh, down payment. So one, po- so uh, you and I, I think, are on a similar wavelength about wavelength about some of this stuff. And so one of the, I've discovered this podcast called No Such Thing as a Fish. And it's done by the, these four researchers for the British sort of Jeopardy type program called QI. Uh, and um, and so they they have these obscure facts and they're very funny about them and each of the four introduces a, a fact every week and then they all kind of flesh that fact out with all kinds of interesting details and you wind up knowing things that you know you just would never know any other way. And the mistake that I think I have made on occasion and I think perhaps you have made on occasion is showing up that same day at some social gathering <laughs> and imagining that people want to know something that you know. Like I just recently discovered that the fax machine was invented way before the telephone, way before the automobile, that Napoleon Third had a fax machine, that Nicholas I, so this is all like 1850s, 1860s, he had a fax machine, he'd send stuff you know, across Russia on his fax machine. Well, that's pretty <laughs> darn interesting, except AJ, you just can't bring that up as you sit down down next to somebody at the dinner table. Well, see, I do find that interesting, but I think you and I are outliers in right, that respect. Exactly. Uh, because, yeah, and I, I, it was made very clear during my year when I would try to crowbar irre- irre- irrelevant facts into conversation, <laughs> my wife started to penalize. She fined me $1 for every irrelevant fact. So she would uh, say, oh, I've, I have such a headache. And I would say, hey, uh, did you know the Bayer Aspirin <laughs> Company invented heroin? They patented heroin as a cough suppressant. It turned out it had some unfortunate uh, side effects. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I actually thought that was semi-relevant. But still, no, the that, dollar, that, that I should, paid her a that, lot of yeah, money. Right, that should have cost you a dollar. Or at least you have, to, you have to say, honey, I'm so sorry. Can I get you a glass of water and some aspirin? By the way, did you know that? Like, you didn't, you, if you'd done the first part of that, maybe it could have knocked it down to 50 cents or something. You are, yes, you are much, much more clever at that. Uh, but I have reformed. I mean, I think I've I've gotten enough uh, negative feedback from irrelevant facts that I know not not I know to keep them to myself. They right. do pop up, but uh, I'll save them for my books. But I think another wavelength that we're both on is that when you know more about a particular subject, you get past the kind of uh, almost fabulous telling of a particular story. Like, for example, I think one of your examples is Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling. Everybody knows that story. Max Schmeling was a big old Nazi boxing puppet, you know, and and Joe Lewis represented the grandest dreams uh, of America and freedom. And they boxed basically uh, as proxies for freedom versus tyranny. That's sort of the, the, the fable that most people know, but it's a more complicated thing than that, assuming that you remember that particular thing that you learned that is one of the one percent i do remember um and yeah that was an example of how we live in such a black and white polarized world but 
life is actually complicated. It's filled with grays and nuances, and that story is an example. I mean, Max Schmeling, he was no saint. Uh, I'm not going to say that he's a role model, but he um, he was this German boxer who was supposed to represent the Nazis. But at the same time, he had a Jewish manager. Named Jacobs, right? Was it Jacobs? Oh, I, see, think, I think his name was, was Jacobs. That was not in the one yeah. percent. Yeah. <laughs> I believe you. He probably was uh, at your family gathering. You didn't even know. <laughs> and he shielded two Jewish boys during Kristallnacht, the uh, night of terror against Jews in Germany. Uh, he helped out paying Joe Lewis's uh, kids tuition. So it, it's a complicated story. People are complicated. And I think the more you know the more you realize that. Right. I, I would add, Max Schmeling later in life came to America, befriended Joe Lewis, um, actually gave him money when Joe Lewis was down in his luck, helped pay for Joe Lewis's funeral. Uh, and the other part of this, of course, is that Joe Lewis, as he was coming up through the boxing ranks in America, as he toured around trying to achieve the greatness he eventually did achieve, was subjected to horrible kinds of racial abuse and you know local sports columnists who would call him a primate or a darkie or something. I mean, the idea that he was there, you know, fighting this fight uh, in order to enshrine the wonderful American values that had made him who he was. No, he had to get past really horrible stuff that's part of us, too. And that's, you know, AJ, another thing that we sort of tend to shove off to the side or we would prefer not to know. Oh, that's such a fascinating point. Uh, Yeah, I mean, heroes are never uh, without huge flaws. Um, and good parts of the story are fairy tales are always with, with, uh, massive complexities. And I think that's good. And that's a lesson that we need now in this, uh, ridiculous world where everyone is a a hero or a villain. Uh, we need to see people for the grays that they are. So another people thing I'm sure people thought, well, AJ, here he has acquired all of this uh, highly randomized knowledge. He's speaking of shows like QI. He's got to go on Jeopardy. He's got to go uh, <laughs> on, on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He's got to go on one of those shows. He's going to clean up the town. So uh, you did go on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, right? Yes, I was not allowed on Jeopardy because I had interviewed Alex Terbeck once for Esquire mm-hmm. magazine, who is a delight. Um, very salty language, by the way, huh. so off screen. Yeah. Uh, but I'm a big fan. So I wasn't allowed on Jeopardy. So I did go on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, uh, which was hosted by Meredith Vieira at the time. And uh, I made it up to the thirty-two dollars or $64,000 question. And then I uh, humiliated myself on national television, <laughs> so uh, which is fine because I think one of the big takeaways of the book is no one is a know-it-all. You cannot know everything, uh, and the smartest people, as you mentioned in your intro, acknowledge that. You know, Confucius, who said, "Real knowledge is to know the extent of one's ignorance." So the smartest people, much smarter than me, are the ones who say how ignorant we are, who have this epistemic humility. Right. And I'm sure you've uh, put that humiliating experience behind you, but do you remember the question you went down on? What was your undoing? Are you kidding? I would never forget it. (laughs) (laughs) That's one fact I will never forget. It is, uh, it was about the meaning of the word erythrocyte, uh, which is, uh, it's either a white blood cell, a red blood cell, uh, serum or platelets. Uh, I don't know the answer. Ah, thank God, because then you would have uh, humiliated me even more. It's red blood cells, as uh, as any doctor or nurse will tell you. But uh, yes, that that cost me quite a bit of money. I mean, even if I did know the answer, like 
I wouldn't have said anyway. I mean, I didn't know the answer. That's really the truth. But, you know, I, I remember being like, you know, a local celebrity in a spelling bee one time and like I screwed up pen, the word, the spelling of penicillin. Uh, and I walked off stage and this woman I know said, how could you get that wrong? How could you not know how to spell penicillin? And I'm thinking, I just put my ass up there on stage and like, you know, you're standing here in the audience. Yeah, you know how to spell penicillin. Uh, I mean, there's nothing worse. Talk about know-it-alls. There's nothing worse than that kind of person. What? You didn't know the answer to that question? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I went, this was a long time ago, but when I went on the book tour for this book and it was called The Know-It-All, I mean, you can imagine the nightmare because people would stand up and say, you know, who is the architect of the town hall in <laughs> Provo, Utah, or whatever? I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't actually know it all. That was kind of the point. Uh, so yes, that is uh, that is unfortunate. Um, but I, if you did know, I would I would say you should say it because there's a difference between between being a know it all and and just embracing curiosity and. Um, and and glorifying intellectualism because I do think there's a scary strain of anti-intellectualism in our country. Uh, so we we have got to balance the two. You don't want to be arrogant, no. but you also want to uh, realize that learning and thirst for knowledge is a wonderful thing. Yeah, knowing stuff is is great and it's cool and it's fun and for the most part it really is very enriching. But there isn't an enormous strain of humility going around in our country right now. And I you know I was sort of even getting ready for this conversation. The, there's always that question of who's the last person who really knew everything? And the truth is nobody because it's a very Eurocentric question, right? All of the nominee, nominees are like Kant and Swedenborg and, and John Stuart Mill, you know, but it's, it, it is sort of an interesting question. At what point did knowledge get so complicated that there was just no possibility that you could understand the current state of physics and have a pretty good understanding of iambic pentameter or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, that is such a great question. I, I mean, there are two things that occur to me. One, one is what you said about Eurocentrism, which uh, which was a big realization for me, just how Euro Western centric my knowledge was. I mean, I remember reading in the T section about the Taiping Rebellion in China, which I had vaguely heard of, uh, and this occurred at pretty much the same time as the U.S. Civil War. And the U.S. Civil War had about seven hundred thousand people who were killed. Uh, but the Taiping Rebellion had 20 million deaths, and I had barely heard of it. So it was much, in terms of just sheer numbers, it was a much bigger deal um, to that country. All right, and that's where we're going to have to stop. I hate interrupting a know-it-all because I could learn something <laughs> if I let him continue, but we actually have to go to a fundraising, a pledge break. You know how that is. A.J. Jacobs, author of many books. They're all fun. This one was the know-it-all, one man's humble quest to become the smartest person in the world. But read everything by A.J. Jacobs. Anytime you see that name, just run towards it. Uh, and meanwhile, run towards these people who are asking you to make a pledge to help, the, particularly if you enjoy this kind of conversation. We like to think we're one of the few places that this kind of conversation, whatever that is, actually happens. So if you would pledge during uh, our show here, right here at the end, that would be very meaningful. <laughs> 